If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Ever since meeting him prior to the release of Moonlight, I've been absolutely desperate to get Barry Jenkins onto Soundtracking, the weekly screen music podcast with me, Edith Bowman. So it's an absolute pleasure to welcome him along ahead of the release of his latest movie, The Quite Magnificent If Beale Street Could Talk. Based on the novel by James Baldwin, it tells the story of a young African-American woman who seeks to clear the name of her imprisoned lover before the birth of their child. If Bill Street Could Talk has received three Oscar nominations, including Best Adapted Screenplay for Barry and Best Original Score for his composer and former guest on this show, Nicholas Bertel. He was absolutely fascinating when he appeared in episode number 46, so do check that out if you haven't already. At Barry's request, Nick's score leans heavily on jazz tropes, as demonstrated by the first cue we're going to play you, Jezebel. Hi, Barry Jenkins. Hey, how are you? I'm really, really good. Um, You're wearing the cool glasses again. I oh, it. thanks. I'm my Dennis the Menace. I don't know if you know who Dennis the Menace is, Jumper, but he's a cartoon character from a Scottish comic. Anyway. I know Dennis the Menace. Do you? Yeah. I love that. Um, since we last spoke, uh, congratulations is in order. And actually, I think today is also going to be congratulations because your new film, If Bill Street Could Talk, um, we're kind of minutes away from Oscar nominations. So yeah. thank you for sparing the time. No, no, my pleasure. Um, it's so beautiful. It's such a, a delicate way of telling a really important story, mm-hmm. I think. And I wanted to talk a lot about it and a lot about how you worked with Nicholas again, Nicholas Bertel, on the score for it because the score does quite specific things mm-hmm. within the film and you can tell you're both very confident in how to use music and how not to use it because mm-hmm. that's almost as important I think. No, no, true, true. But I guess start with what were the conversations that you had with Nicholas about this story and, and you know you adapt in James's novel and, and wanted to tell us and where you thought the music fade. The first conversation I had with uh, with Nick was just you know what the what the book was about and what the film would be about. I think when you're making an adaptation, especially of James Baldwin, it's yeah. important to distinguish you know what the point of view of the piece is. And Mr. Baldwin had a really evocative voice, and so when you read the novel, that's James Baldwin's point of view. Tish is the main character, but it's James Baldwin's point of view. And I told Nick the film is definitely going to be Tish's point of view, and so that's where the music needs to come from. And 
You know, we got into the weeds a bit, talking more aesthetically. I said to him, you know, James Baldwin was a jazz man. James Baldwin's father was a jazz man. I felt like the score wanted to be ruled um, by jazz. I said, I, I just hear uh, horns, you know, a lot of brass. And that's where, where Nick started. is you know, sometimes you can write a score and that score is imposing its will on the film. What Nick does so well is he takes the score and uses it to amplify mm. uh, the emotions of the characters, to amplify what the film itself is already um, saying. Well, there's moments in the film as well where it works so subtly but beautifully where it's talking to us uh, as an audience mm -hmm. and saying much more than words could almost. Mm -hmm. I think that really shows the synergy between the two of you and, and how you guys have come to that point of, of knowing what's right to put in there and it's not manipulating the audience in any way, shape or form because that's a really fine line as well. It, it is a fine line and, and I think, you know, there's so many different things, you know, you can, I often think of this, the, the terms um, communicating an emotion, you know, manipulating the audience's emotions or amplifying the mm -hmm. character's emotions and I do think the way Nick works is in the spirit of amplifying mm -hmm. um, the audience's emotions it's interesting too because literature is such an amazingly powerful art form you know I think it's the you know even though I work in cinema you know I think that literature is the supreme art form purely because it just it harnesses all the senses even though it's like words on a page it couldn't be a less sensual physical object mm -hmm. you know and yet, you know, if you're sitting in a restaurant reading a book, you stop smelling the restaurant because the author describes the smell through synesthesia. You intellectually understand what that smells like in your head. The author describes a line of dialogue. Somebody says something, you hear it in your head. Everything is activated. But in cinema, it's a very passive experience. You're here. The screen is there. And so in this adaptation, because Mr. Baldwin was so stock and trade, was interiority, it's like, how can I take sound and image these two elements and reflect the interior life of the characters? And Nick is a very big part of it. The cinematographer James Laxon is too, but yeah. in this conversation we're having, Nick is a very, very big part of it. Yeah. start with the adaptation 
Yeah, I mean, it starts out um, curatorially, I guess. You know, it's uh, it takes about 20 hours to read this book. It only takes two hours to watch the film. Hmm. So obviously, you have to do some some editing. But even aside from that, it was it was visuals. You know, what can I see? I don't consider myself just a storyteller because if I was just telling stories, I would be writing literature. You mm -hmm. know, that's a superior art form for telling stories. I think cinema is about an experience. And so, what needs to be, what demands to be visualized in this narrative, and then again talking with the thoughts of a score or sound, and then how can we best amplify um, these images? And that, that was the starting point. That yeah. was probably the starting point, that and the point of view, just knowing that the movie wasn't going to be a procedural, it wasn't going to be a cause and effect, this happens and this happens. It was going to be, my main character was a 19-year-old girl who's remembering some of the best moments and some of the darkest moments in her life. So the whole film is ruled by memory, by dreams, by visions. Yeah. And that's very freeing aesthetically. And so, and so I thought, okay, how do we reflect that in sounds yeah. and images? There's a really wonderful kind of structure that kind of surprises you sometimes where things where, you know. Don't say it, don't say I'm it. I'm not going to say it, anything. It's, it's I'm like, not going like, to say it's anything. It's like jazz. It's like jazz. <laughs> I mean, uh, but, but it, it kind of is. Yeah, like the rhythm changes and, and the music really kind of runs brilliantly with that in terms yeah. of what you're doing visually, narratively as well mm -hmm. sort of thing. But you don't storyboard, do you? Is that right? You don't kind of... We don't storyboard, we shot list. Um, okay. And what I like about that is, you know, then we get on set. You know, I used to work in advertising. Yeah. And I think when you're working in advertising, you get on set, you have these boards, and then you've got, oh my God, you've got the agency, you've got the client, and you've got just all these people. And the one thing everybody a sees... is A lot of cooks. <laughs> and all these cooks are like, this is the board. It's almost like you go to a restaurant. Instead of it being list like names on the menu, it's just pictures of food. It's like you said it was going to look exactly like, like this. this, and it's like, well, but the fish showed up today, and it didn't Clever. look like that, you know. And <laughs> yeah. so, and so we don't storyboard, um, but we do shot list, yeah. and that's really just like a roadmap. Mm -hmm. You know, that way when when we get to set. The actors kind of have an idea of what they're doing. I have an idea of the DP. But then once we call action, then it's like, okay, what are you actually doing? Mm. And how can we take that and finesse it and harness it and hopefully arrive at something that we think is very true and authentic? Yeah. Can I talk about specifics within course, the film as well? Because I, I've watched it three times and, and kind oh of... Oh, my God. Thank yeah, you. it's so... It, it's, it's beautiful. And, and the combination as well, it's sort of specifics of the way that you use music within the narrative of if mm -hmm. it's a, a I love kind of the mom and dad dancing in the mm -hmm. you know in, in the flat and deciding on those specific tracks of what you're going to use how do you mm -hmm. come to that decision um you know I keep uh, a list of tracks mm -hmm. in iTunes um they're usually film uh, specific yeah. and so there was a list for Moonlight and a lot of those songs made it in there's a list for Bill Street and it's just one of those things where I think as I'm writing yeah. you know and also too I like to write songs into the script so the actors can have a vibe as well mm -hmm. um, that scene you met that the moment you mentioned where you know Coleman and Regina are dancing it's not scripted you know and there's no music actually playing they're just kind of they're grooving you know, yeah, they're grooving <laughs> because I, I tell the actors there's yellow lights at the beginning and the end of scenes and so when I call action, you can just freestyle your way into the scene, and when I call cut, you can freestyle your way out. The track's Whole Lot of Love by Lee Hurst, isn't it? Which is beautiful. Yeah. And so that's just Coleman and Regina just basically being husband and wife and oh, having a little wow. moment. And that's love indeed You give me all the love you have And that's all I need I know you're not holding out Holding out on me
version of the film that actually has an Al Green cue they're dancing to right there. And it was so sexy. Uh, <laughs> but you have a music budget. And yeah. ultimately, we couldn't clear that song. <laughs> yeah. I'd quite like to see a chart of, like, number one of the most expensive artists in the world to oh, feature in films. You, to you, like... you know what? Every film is like that, where there's there's the song I remember being in the film, and then there's the song that's actually out in the world. That's For the, the good times. Al Green's in there, though, isn't so he? So, yes. We yeah. had two Al Green tracks. Okay, right. We had okay. two Al Green That's tracks. where the expense comes in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't look so sad I know it's over But life goes on And this world Keeps on turning Let's just be glad We had this time To spend together There is no need To watch the bridges That will burn Um, phony where he's he's lying in his, his cell mm -hmm. but he's having flashbacks to sculpting mm -hmm. and I wanted to ask if that, is that a similar thing with that where there's no storyboard or you just let him kind of no, that, feel the movement to that's it. one of the ones that even from the very first draft of the script that's three lines in the novel uh, Mr. Baldwin writes speaking through Tish uh, Fawny is working the wood. It's a very soft wood. He doesn't want to defile the wood. And that just revealed itself to me. Mm. Again, sometimes when you start an adaptation in the beginning, if an image grabs me, I know I'm on the right track. And I just saw this young man who's a sculptor. You know, he's in prison awaiting trial. And so this thing that's such a simple object that represents so much about him, his life, his aspirations, and it's right there and he can't shape it. To me, that was a very concrete metaphor for the entire film. Mm -hmm. And speaking of now moving into score, that was one of the last pieces that Nick, um, Nick and I uh, wrote. And it was one of those things where I was trying to understand, so what, what is happening here? Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the possibility, the impossibility, the, the distance between them is so so fine now they're so close mm. and yet there's nothing this guy can do to yeah. actually manifest his his dreams to realize them what does that sound like and nick was like i think it kind of sounds like the entire soundscape of the film that's almost quite bringing itself into a melody but it can't quite ever take hold it can't yeah. quite find a form and that was how we came up with this piece you enter amazing Thank you. 
there's this lovely kind of theme, I guess, for, for the two of them that mm -hmm. kind of weaves in and out of the film. And mm -hmm. it's such a comfort watching the film when you hear it because it makes you feel safe mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a lovely way. But it's lovely to have that where it, it comes in and it comes back at certain times yeah. of the film, not overpowered in any way, but it just mm -hmm. gives you a feeling as while you're watching it. Yeah, there's a duality of experience in both the novel and the film. You know, it's a love story. Yeah. And it's a love story about soulmates, but it's also a very grounded depiction of social inequities, of systemic injustice, mass incarcerations, of the ways in which these systems we all participate in can be so easily manipulated by rogue yeah. agents. And so trying to find a balance between those two, you have to use all the tools at your disposal. You know, one of the things I realized was it wasn't about having 50-50 screen time, you know, to arrive at parity between the love and the darkness. You know, it was almost like chemistry. Certain elements have denser properties, and so you need less of them to arrive at parity. And so the score, it's all built to the same stuff. The, the, the lovely cues are built to the same instrumentation, same melodies as the darker cues, and yet they have different characteristics in a certain way. But I think because they're all related, it's all built to the same stuff, it kind of feels like it adds up to this, this whole um, of, of a singular experience. Uh, there is one moment of quasi-chopped and screwed. The, the way Nick and oh, I this is a new theme, like quasi-chopped well, and screwed. Well, the way Nick and I describe it is, you know, <laughs> Moonlight is very straightforward chopped and screwed techniques. And I think in doing that, what we learned was, again, this idea of a film score being this thing that's composed of the same parts. Typically what you do is there's one group of instrumentation for the bright things and another group of instrumentation for the dark things. We were like, it's best if all those things are from the same vat, mm -hmm. from the same... Uh, the same recipe, the same instruments. And so chopping and screwing was the pathway for us to do that. We would take instruments that we were using to build the, the very lush romantic cues, the same instruments, but we would break them through chopped and screw techniques. So it's not that we're just slowing things down, mm. we're literally creating all new sounds and then recomposing new pieces of score out of those broken sounds. So that was how we did Chopped and Screwed in this film. And I, I wish I'd known I was coming to do this interview because you've seen the movie three times, so you don't need it. But we, <laughs> on the digital sc uh, score, we don't have the blue and green the okay. way it appears in the film. film yeah. But on the vinyl, the blue and green will appear as it does in the film because that's the primary element of Chopped and Screwed in the movie where the track Eros is now corrupted, distorted, yeah. eroded to be the track PTSD, which plays when Brian Tyree Henry appears as the character Dan.
literally the same damn melody, the same instruments, but this thing that could be a symbol of birth in yeah. one circumstance is now a symbol of death in another. Writing the screenplay as well, do you, were you thinking about, I mean, I'm assuming you, you knew you wanted to work with Nicholas again mm -hmm. on, on this film, but thinking about when you're writing the script about where music, not replace dialogue, but like mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier, are you even thinking about, I don't need script here, I don't need words here. Yeah. I think that, that Nicholas could create something that will say more than... than I, I gotta say, not with score. Yeah. With, one, one of the things I like about working uh, with Nick is that Nick comes last. And what, what I mean by last is there's the writer, then there's the director, then there's the actors and the cinematographer. Yeah. I think Nick can't do what he does without the actors. Yeah. And so at the script stage, I have no idea who's going to be in the film. Yeah. You know, if Kiki Lane wasn't the lead in this film, Nicholas Bertel's score would be different. It just would be. Amazing. You know, that's how it works. Yeah. And so, no, I, I very rarely are, uh, I'm very rarely imagining score at the script stage. The needle drops, though, those I am thinking of. You yeah. Know, in, in Moonlight, when Black walks to the jukebox and plays uh, Hello Stranger, yeah. that is in the screenplay. Hello, stranger. It seems so good to see you back again. How long has it been? It seems like a mighty long time. my baby. It seems like a mighty long Coltrane track, I think it's I Wish I Knew, uh -huh. um, in this film, I knew that when Fonny drops the needle, that is what he's playing. I knew it. I knew it. But the score, no, the score can't become what it is without the actors. I knew it was going to be, is that, is that 
coming from you then? Uh, that's coming from me. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Now, 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 our music supervisor is amazing, mm -hmm. is amazing. You know, when we had this Al Green track, um, uh, actually, what, was it Was it Al Green? What was the track? You know, it's so good. I don't even remember. I've got a, I've got a list. I've, I've got... No, no, I'm thinking of things that aren't in the film. Oh, aren't in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, so, so, okay. So, 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 so <laughs> this we, is inside so here we go. So we had two Al Greens yeah. and two Nina Simones. Oh, two wow. Nina Simones. Okay, we got That's All I Ask and, in the uh, film. And, yeah. and that's, that's All I Ask mm -hmm. is amazing. Mm -hmm. That was always going to be there. Yeah. And what you do is you go, you know what? I'm going to pay for that one. And I'm going to pay whatever I have to pay for that one. Because that's a moment where we ha actually have voiceover. Mm -hmm. And we realize we don't need the voiceover because Nina is doing all the talking that we will ever need. And I think Mr. Baldwin will be okay with us replacing his words with hers. Don't try to blow out the sound for me, baby. I'm not asking for what I know can't be. tells uh, her father that she's pregnant. There was a Nina Simone song playing there. It was, um, I won't get in trouble with this, it was Mr. Bojangles. I knew a man, Bojangles, and he danced for you. Worn out shoes With silver hair, a ragged shirt, and baggy pants The old soft Then he lightly touched the down. I met him in a cell in New Orleans. I was down now. He looked at me to be the eyes of age as he spoke. But our music supervisor is so great. He took the energy of that and he's like, I think this song, nobody's heard of it. I think it'll work for you. And it's this track, Mist of a Dream, which is beautiful. Yeah. I never heard it before. I'd never heard of it. You know, I know you guys are big on the northern sound here, so maybe. Yeah, no, you guys I, heard I of hadn't it. heard of it, but it's absolutely perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. I saw you standing there. of a dream Sometimes you get to a point where you go, 
That's actually, like if I told you Classic Man wasn't always the song that plays in Moonlight. No. And if I told you, I'm not going to tell you what that song was. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was not always Classic Man. It was not. But but Classic Man is the perfect song. Yeah. Marley, calling all night. I can pull the room where I'm being polite. Ali, Ali, calling call all night. I can be a fool when I'm being polite. Oh me, oh me, oh me, oh my. I know, I know many women want to be in my life. Oh me, oh me, oh me, oh my. Why, why can't every woman end up being my wife? Even, even if she go and it's wonderful that as a director you're open to collaboration and, and open to people's opinions about things because not everyone is. You have to be. Same thing with work, working with Nick. You know, I say to Nick, we need to just find a direction, not a destination. Mm -hmm. You know, in this film, the direction was it's jazz, it's brass, it's horns. And very quickly, on going down that path, we realized, oh, these horns are great, but Tish feels like a cello. And so we ended up writing for horns, but playing horn melodies with oh, cello. Yeah. By the, the last third of the film, now we're writing for cello, but playing cello melodies on horns. That can only happen by us choosing a direction, not a destination. I think that with some of these needle drops, it's the same way. This film ends with this Billy Preston track, My Country Tis of Thee, and all I said to our supervisor, this guy Gabe Hilfer, does a great job. I said to him, I want something. This is a very American story, and this is a very American family, and they're like any other American family. They're looking for love, family, community, and so I want a piece of Americana. I want it to say the same thing, but I want the meaning to be totally different because of the performance. And I'd never heard of Billy Preston's My Country Tis of Thee, but when he played it, I was like, okay, this is exactly what I'm looking for. I couldn't have found that myself. There's just no way. My country tis of thee Sweet land of liberty Sing. 
it rain. It's funny, when I spoke to Nicholas about Moonlight and the intricacies of creating the sounds of, of that film and the linkage between, sonically, you know, mm -hmm. the three chapters and stuff as well, and, and even little detail, he, he told us this great story about the sound of, of water dropping in a bath or, mm -hmm. or, or something, mm -hmm. and that being then used in a theme chopped and screwed into a theme later on. Yeah. I'm such a geek with all that kind of well, stuff, well, but I love the, the, all those stories of the creation of... The thing that we like to decide, almost my, myself and Nick, is if it has meaning for us, that's enough, you know? Yeah. It, it's enough of a lead to, to, to chase. And then it just gives us a pathway to something that's really interesting. That The thing you're talking about is there's a moment where, um, in the second chapter, when Chiron is lifting his head from the sink and the water stripping down, Nick took that sound and made drums out of it. And also in the second chapter, the first time Sharon and Kevin meet in the stairwell, at the end they give each other dap, they like clap hands. And he took that and made a drum beat out of that as well. Wow. And as Sharon is walking to the school to smash the chair over the bully's head, all the percussion are these moments of intimacy between him and Kevin, Amazing. but now repurposed and morphed as instruments. And so nobody needs to know that, you know, unless we tell them. It's so great though. But, but, but I do think it adds a feeling oh, to yeah. the score. I, I really do think it does. It's brilliant. It's so clever. It's such a clever way of working. In, in your journey as a film fan that resonated with you where not just the music but mm -hmm. the, the whole thing kind of really connected with you and resonated particular films or directors yeah you know it wasn't until I was pretty deep into film school and yeah. I started to discover um, foreign cinema that I really started to I don't know evolve like my aesthetic yeah. and, and, and I realized that that my point of view was very limited my experience I was from a very small world and there was so much else out there to yeah. be experienced and I, I did a few things I think that were very very smart the, the music I was listening to was amazing but it was all of one genre I was listening to you know top 40 hip-hop and R&B and I was watching all these foreign films and I was like I've never heard classical music you know I've never heard drone music and so yeah. I would um, this is at the birth of the internet kind of <laughs> yeah so I go on this website called Epitonic and Epitonic was really cool because if you, this is so early days, but if you liked a band, they would then give you 40 links of other bands that were similar. And so I would just find really cool drone or synth bands mm -hmm. or classical piece I liked. And then I would just like spend a whole day clicking and opening a tab for every other thing listed. And then my cinematographer and I, we, there was this vinyl, this record store called Vinyl Fever in Tallahassee, Florida, and they had an experimental music bin. And in this bin, the CDs were only like $2.99. This was yeah. back in the days of physical media. And they were only $2.99 because nobody in town wanted to buy them. And so we would literally just take 20 bucks and randomly just pick up Amazing. five or six discs. And that's how I discovered this band called Stars of the Lit with this composer named uh, Adam Wiltsey, who's uh, he used to work with Johan Johansson, really cool guy.
just in that way, things just started to sort of like open up and reveal themselves. And what I realized was that there was a very there was a very conventional way to juxtapose music and imagery. Yeah. There were certain kinds of ways to do needle drops and things like that. And then there was this other way that where everything was just totally wide open, that I could make a film featuring an all-black cast, you know, and it could be scored by a chamber orchestra because Claire Denis made Chocolat and Beau Travail, and she did it, so why the fuck can't I, you know? <laughs> but, but then I also realized, too, that I didn't have to turn my back on the world I grew up in just to also embrace these other music forms, you know? Yeah. I remember going to the flea market and buying these, again, you know, going back in the day, these like, you know, $5 mixtapes, you mm-hmm. know, where some guy, you know, who drives a Cadillac would just make all these cassette tapes that would have all this really amazing soul music from the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. And now I make these films and yes, they're air quote art house and they have chamber uh, score. And yet you got a classic man, you got a Goody Mob, you got a Nina Simone, you know, you got mm-hmm. a Al Green. That Al Green track that plays in a Bill Street could talk, that's not film school. That's not Oscar. That's not Hollywood. That's me and my brother at the flea market buying old, we called them oldie goldie, you know, cassette tapes. And <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, like Godard said, it's not where you take things from, it's where you take them to. And I feel like I've brought my, my history, my background with me, but I've also picked up all these other things from other worlds. Like Nicholas Bertel is a classically trained pianist who went to Juilliard. And yet he's making films about these very intimate black dramas with Mm -hmm. Barry Jenkins, who's from the projects in Miami. You know, I think to me that shows how art and culture and uh, all these things that we do can uh, be these things that bring us together in a certain way. And I think in Nick's sound, legitimately, we're bringing certain elements of culture um, together, you know, through the spirit of James Baldwin in this film. Yeah, definitely. such a, a, a an important relationship mm-hmm. and and you've obviously found this really brilliant communication with mm-hmm. with Nicholas that doesn't even need a conversation sometimes in terms of it could just be no it, but but you know what though we will it's almost like I, I've, I've always wanted to be like a musician where you just go to Can an island play? and you just no no no, no, no. <laughs> Nick, Nick, Nick says I have an amazing ear you know my, my ear is <laughs> my instrument polite way, isn't it? my ear is my instrument um, but we will just go in a studio and again it's all about having a direction not a destination yeah and I feel like we're just we're just really chasing what do the characters feel like you know, what does this feel like? What does it feel like? And then just allowing that to manifest itself in sounds. Mm. Can't wait to see what's next. Thank you, my dear. Um, and good luck today. Uh, Thank you. Everything hey, across wh- wh- where, you, where do you get your glasses from? I, to tell the people, the, tell the people. These are, it's an American brand, actually. Um, he's called, oh, this is Maikita. Maikita. Yeah, they, I don't, they're so dirty. I'm no, so no, sorry. No, I, no, I live downtown, downtown LA. There's a Maikita there shop, like right down there. I get my glass inspiration from... Um, the internet. This episode of Soundtracking is sponsored by my Kita Glasses. Barry Jenkins, thank you, sir. Thank, thank you, you, my dear. Thank you.
From the score to If Beale Street Could Talk, that's the end credit music by the brilliant Nicholas Brattel, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Barry Jenkins. My huge thanks to Barry for taking the time to talk to us. He's such a charming man and I absolutely love spending time with him. If Beale Street Could Talk is out in the UK this week with Nick's Oscar-nominated score, available via our very good friends at Lakeshore Records. Be sure to check out the film and listen to the score in its entirety. If you want to hear my conversation with Nick back in episode 46, head to iTunes or edithbowman.com where you'll also be able to catch up with everyone else we've spoken to and subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK to keep up with all the latest news. And please do keep telling your friends about us if you like what you hear. Next up is writer, actor, director Joel Edgerton talking about his new film, Boy Erased. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. (laughs) 